For those of us who read China Man, and I got it as soon as it came out in India because he told me that hey, you know, you must check this book out. Uh, so I think for all of us, it almost feels personal the fact that your second book won the Booker. Oh, good. So <laughs> it was a struggle. And, and we, sorry. No, it was a struggle, and it was a long wait since China Man to this. So um, yeah, yeah, good to have lots of people on your side. But also, I think even the China man, it wasn't really an easy ride, no? Because I mean, first it was published, and I don't know whether it won the Russian prize before it uh, was also before it was published in India and then elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. Uh, it won the Russian prize, but um, yeah, I guess every book is a struggle, and every book I'm de- doomed to write it twice. Uh, I'm working on my short story collection, which is already it's out in India, Birth Lottery, but. For the UK, I think we'll be doing some tweaking here and there. So I'm I'm used to this long process of uh, get uh, till it gets to the shelves. Uh, but yeah, even Chinaman, I think I guess that was my first book. And for Sri Lankan writers um, writing in English, you're not assured that you're going to get a publishing deal, especially on your debut novel, right? So um, yeah, I think uh, I self-published it initially. And then it won this prize, and then uh, but it took a good year or two before it got in before Chiki Sarka at Random House took it on, and then it went through another evolution. So yeah, that seems to be the way. Hopefully, the next one can be quick. As soon as I've got off this tour, I can sit down and write and have one out in a year. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, but you know, we were actually speaking about how, even though I mean, I of course read China Man again before the interview. But then, when when you won the book, we were speaking about how with China Man, all of us could remember it verbatim almost, or we thought we did. And every time, even now, when I'm stuck in a traffic jam, I think about uh, that one line where you said that these people were stuck in this traffic jam in Colombo, and then they passed the cop who was causing the jam, and then it was smooth thereafter. Uh-huh. And that's always the case in the uh-huh. subcontinent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and one of my friends re- remembered this party of cricketers. There's this Rana Tungale character and this Tony Greg like character, and you know. Mm. Um, so I, I, I guess um, the fact that that was so precious to you, but you were not really sure of a publisher, and you self-published it. But then it went on to achieve such success with the DSC Prize and then the Wisden List. I think it was the second. Uh, it was the number two cricket book ever. So, with that kind of success, I mean, obviously, it might have come as a bit of a surprise given your expectations up front. But does that also put pressure on you in terms of writing your second and you know the, your career as such? No, I think there's always pressure. I have always felt pressure. I'm feeling pressure now. I I just have to write a small travel article and uh, maybe finish a short story. But I always feel that pressure of, yeah, maybe this story is not going to work out. So I think that's always there. Then, okay, finishing the book is a struggle in itself. Um, but I never took for granted that, uh, I mean, now I guess I'm in a different position. I can re- be reasonably sure I'll have a publisher for the next book. But uh, after Chinaman, I mean, it took a good, I mean, look, I took a while to get published and then I, I was working in Singapore. I think when I met you, I would have been working in Singapore. Um, and um, yeah, we got married and then had two kids and moved back. So life happened in the meantime. And, uh, you know, I was, and Chinaman, I mean, it did, it won the prizes. It, it's it got a readership in, uh, yeah, the Indian subcontinent, certainly, and scatterings elsewhere. Um, but you know, it didn't guarantee that my next book would get a publisher. And I found that out when I finally started to sell it. Uh, and Seven Moons was, yeah, it was also a difficult book and a very different book. And that had its own struggles. But when it was done, I think so. It's not something you take for granted as a writer writing in Colombo that your book will automatically, you, you can get it published locally, for sure. There are local, some good local publishers, but India is the real powerhouse. And 
in the, but hopefully you know i mean after this booker win maybe if that's firstly if, if more sri lankans are writing that would be a good thing and if uh, more indian publishers are looking to sri lanka for stories that would be a good thing but yeah i think be prepared to struggle i would say to any sri lankan writer um but uh, yeah i i don't want to give a motivational talk but yeah you keep at it 7 years later uh, you're in greece uh, uh, sipping wine doing a in between a european tour so it's it's pretty bizarre and i saw the booker uh, shortlist is out um uh, today yesterday i think yeah the new one mm-hmm. and yeah a lot of so soon there'll be a new winner and then i can get off this uh, train or this merry round and, <clears throat> and go back to writing but yeah and when i write the third book um, i know it will be a struggle as well and i'll have to go through those challenges but i guess not the publishing challenges this time maybe that might be a bit clearer but so so there is definitely like a pre booker life and a post booker life uh for sure. well i hope not when it comes down to the writing um when it comes down to the routine of the writing and family life and all that um but yeah i'm still in the first year so this year has been pretty out out of the ordinary i've been on the road pretty much since the win um did the indian subcontinent extensively then australia new zealand now i'm on a european tour um but i think after november yeah i need to draw a line and say okay go back to kurunagala and start typing again um but yeah there certainly is and i think in bigger ways than just my lifestyle change it means that i'm a, a you know i can call myself a writer you know the book is now uh, in you know 30 odd markets uh, and we're touring foreign languages and all that so um yeah but i never took that i've been writing for 15 years when i was writing chinaman i was a copywriter and i was doing this fun little idea on the side uh seven moons i took it a lot more seriously but still i was working day job family and writing this thing and hoping for the best so um yeah i think that is the power of a big prize um but yeah i think it's not going to the third book is not going to write itself or the fourth book and by the, before by that time maybe the robots the ai will be writing books for us so yeah i think i've got only a couple of books left uh let's see uh if the but um Yeah it it has been a fun it's been a fun ride but I'm waiting looking forward to the quiet life again Right Mira you spoke earlier about how you seem to be destined to write each book twice and uh, you said in an interview that apparently your brief was if someone knows nothing about cricket they should still be able to get China man and the same way if someone knows nothing about Sri Lanka they should still be able to get Mali but I just think I mean A the Chinaman I think it's impossible um I mean maybe they did get it but then the joy of you know watching 80s and 90s cricket and seeing those echoes there is something special and I was just thinking as a writer you know and when you when everyone has access to google you kind of feel frustrated with these sort of briefs that you also have to put in notes for those who are too lazy to google or whatever yeah no I think look if if you followed sri lankan cricket or are a fan of cricket reading chinaman will be a rich experience just like if you have some experience of the sri lankan civil war or knowledge of it this will work better but i think you should be able to and because i've engaged with stories uh from cultures you know from nigeria from latin america cultures that i have no real connection with and you don't get all of it you know you're not getting all of it but you um, you know there's a connection there are similarities we're all human dystopias in different parts of the world so um yeah but i still i i would put still put that brief uh, i think it's a good brief for a writer to have be be polite anyone can pick it up uh, 20 years from now across the world and it should give them something uh, it shouldn't be tied to i mean it's a tough thing easier said than done maybe that's why it takes 7 years to edit a book into that shape but uh, i think it's i i still stick with that yeah yeah because you have been uh, your note at the end said singapore uh, 2016 so you'd finished the book 7 years ago then like the first as in charts with the dead you'd finished that 7 years ago um which note was that there have been a few additions 
which are no no i think right right at the end of uh, i mean off um, seven months like the uh-huh. latest the booker prize with the edition i think you have your acknowledgments and you had a sort of note and i think it's at singapore let me just check 26 but, oh no um, so that's probably yeah. 2015 so that's probably when i started it and where i started it and where i ended up finishing it um yeah right. i think that's probably a cry 2015 if i recall correctly and then would have finished it in uh, in colombo in 2021 yeah but that's a very long time to stay with a book and a story and to have to rewrite it because i read both versions i read chats with the dead and there are actually quite a few differences and key ones especially towards the climax when something happens i don't want to give anything away for those who haven't read it but what he knows before and after even who is there who is endangered there are so many drastic changes and uh, i mean was it were all these kind of inputs you got or were many of them your ideas no no this was a big process and i mean i think the two books i haven't revisited the the two chats with the dead certainly not um richard simon in sri lanka writes a very great article i recommend people to check out if you're into this minutia of any compares the two books i roughly think that they begin and start in the same place and they have a similar arc and touch the same points but richard simon says it's basically uses the same words to tell two very different stories and i think that's fair uh, but yeah you're right we did take out so i mean certain things for pacing certain things for clarity we uh, tried to make it uh, clear you know what the stakes were what the rules were so you don't get lost uh, but yeah and we did insert a subplot there which kind of gives marley a bit more of an arc where he has to uh, do something selfless for someone who's in danger and um, so there was a i think it was just having the pandemic that was the reason because there was no big publishing deadline um we thought we had and um Yeah, 2021 we realize it's not going to get published then so you have another 9 months so then we started taking it apart and yeah this was uh, Natanya Jans of sort of books she would give me the notes uh, I mean I suspected it needed work when I even when I submitted chats with the dead but the Indian publishers um, they seemed quite uh, uh, happy to I think you know this India's familiar with Sri Lanka's political landscape and with the mythologies so they were eager to put it out but um, pandemic hit so it came out in jan 2020 and then pandemic hit a couple of months later and the book kind of just uh, disappeared i think i mean i guess people weren't buying books but also it didn't get reviewed that well and um, so that it was sort of languishing and not being able to find a uk deal so natanya jans is who i approached and she um, yeah she a very generous editor um, and um, mm. you know there's obviously push back and the stuff you don't agree with and you fight for it and and so on but uh, generally she was right she was right she said we can't be confusing in the beginning we need to make sure there's a clear thread and not everything's playing at once and the, there's great notes and i would see when i take out 30 pages and replace them with like three very carefully placed pages that the book suddenly fizzles and so you know that you're in good hands So it was a pleasure to do. I mean it was hard work, it was frustrating but but then it got to a stage it was done and we felt like okay, if people don't get it now that's fine, but this is what it is. And I think you have to have that moment before you put a book out there, you know, you think okay, I did my best, hopefully someone reads it. And that was the attitude that I went in uh before I got the astonishing news that I'd been long listed for the booker during a petrol queue during the Aragale. Yeah. Yeah, uh, apparently your wife was in the queue and you were picking up the kids or something oh. and uh, Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what happened. And yeah, she got a full tank of petrol and I got the long list. But we were more <laughs> excited So yeah and I've been I kept that attitude like going into the shortlist and then of go now the win happened um yeah Tra- airports and uh, hotels now and lots of talking um but I've got I've gotten back to reading and writing that's the yeah mm-hmm. I'm quite like the last couple of weeks yeah and so that's a good sign yeah that's what keeps you sane 
you know, one of the most intriguing things for me with Chinaman, like the edition I have has a lot of black and white photos. I don't know if that was there in every edition. Uh, but then those photos, they kind of, one, they mixed reality with fiction. I particularly remember this woman with her hand <laughs> saying no oh, photos. Yeah. And, and I was kind of curious about your connection with photography because now here you have Mali also taking photos often without permission but getting annoyed that, uh, you know, Dr. Rani has used his photos. Uh, so just could you talk a little bit about your connection with photography? Well, personally, none. I mean, I'm a, I am admire a great photograph, but I can't take one. To, I can barely take a selfie. My wife does all the holiday <laughs> photographs because I just, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm lazy, don't have the patience. Um, but, you know, I'm fascinated by photography and, uh, yeah, photography as a document. And I've been to many exhibitions and seen many photographs. But, yeah, I can't take one myself. But I I did work in advertising when I was writing Chinaman. I was at uh, McCann Erickson in Colombo. And, um, yeah, we were used to doing these kind of fake news. And they, they weren't called fake news then, but, you know doctoring photographs and uh, doing that stuff. So I thought I'd call on those resources. I mean, first resource was my brother, who's a very skilled artist and is also uh, quite cricket crazy. And so I asked him, can you draw Pradeep Matthews 12, whatever, mystery balls? And and he, he had a lot of fun with that. But the photographs, yes, because there is, I mean, if you if you want to geek out on it, there's a, there's a hidden clue in one of the photographs. Uh, that reveals a key to the whole thing, which is hidden there. And uh, yeah, you can go back and see it. And yeah, no spoilers. But uh, so to hide that, we had a few other photographs. But yeah, yeah, I remember that shoot of Pradeep's mum, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was a half notion I had. I never pulled it off. I actually spoke with JWT. They gave me the idea, but I never pulled it off that we were going to go all the way and pretend that this was a real thing. And we are going to get a lawyer to sue me and show that Pradeep's living in, uh, you know, down under and what's happening. And uh, so we didn't go that far in the end. But in the book, there's so photographs and illustrations also tell a bit of the story. Um, but yeah, I with me, no, I, I'm not a gambler either. I'm a, yeah, I played poker. I'm, I'm, I'm really quite average at it. Um, but yeah, I watched a lot of gamblers and uh, yeah, followed a lot of photographers and then sort of put this together. Right. Uh, so, I mean, another thing which I kind of thought, I mean, both these characters, one of the things they have in common, I guess, is uh, I guess like most of humanity, they tend to let down the people who are closest to them mm. um, and they get tend to feel let down by those who should love them most. Mm. And it's sort of a tough truth to confront, right? Because um, I don't know. I mean, it's, I guess a lot of us end up doing this. But uh, mm. to put that in both your main characters, I think, takes a lot of guts as a writer. And can, do you remember how that aspect evolved of them? I'm not sure I do. Because the emotional, um, the, the relationships and all of that is not the stuff that you can really research too deeply. Um, so I, I now say with Chinaman, I got into the cricket quite deeply with this, into the, um, yeah, the unsolved murders and, yeah, photography, gambling. I researched all of that. But the human relationships, I I think it's just when you write for long enough, so when by about the third year of redrafting and all that, suddenly the characters start reacting and talking and behaving or you might write something and you're like no no they wouldn't say that they wouldn't do that and they start kind of telling you it sounds spooky but they start telling you the story or who they are and all of that and that's really what I've based the relationships on so I guess it's you see both both characters have daddy issues or daddy issues feature there and I think that's true of Sri Lankans of our say my generation you know our parents were uh, you know born in the 40s um, maybe the 50s or earlier even and yeah they had a um, you know I provided for you I put you through school I didn't leave your mother what else do you want from me man <laughs> don't, don't talk to me about it that's, that's kind of the, the archetype all my friends seem to have that same relationship but we are now by contrast we grew up watching I guess American TV and Indian movies so we are like yeah involved with our kids or we hope to be and 
and all of that. But so, so you see that's so obviously that's if you want, I don't want to do psychoanalysis on myself, but uh, you can see in the strained relationship between father and son. And you can even argue that Chinaman is a father and son story. It's a, it's a, yeah. and, uh, and even Mali has some clear daddy issues, which are not particularly resolved. And he's got some mommy issues as well. Um, yeah, so maybe you borrow these things. Uh, the love triangle, I mean, I've never been in that sort of threesome situation, but, uh, you know, you've, you've lived long enough, you've gossiped with people and you know how human relationships work. So I think really that's, you kind of draw on that. I, you don't try and kind of craft it. It's, it's a tough one to craft because either the characters, they, they react to each other on the page and you sort of try and just shape that. Um, so yeah, it's 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 weird. I I've never thought of that, and because uh, how do you research them? Uh, I suppose yeah. I think it. I, I I'm guessing it, it came organically, but over many drafts. Yeah, but I mean, but it seems so natural. I guess what you said about because like Jackie is one of my favorite characters, and you know though she doesn't appear for so much of the book, she's just so lovable and so alive. Um, so uh, yeah. Um, but there's this other, you know, I was just thinking about now you have this era of sensitivity readers and everyone's like, oh, who can write about what and who can write about whom? And I was thinking you must have got a lot of grief about, uh, you know, your choice of a gay man for the main character and speaking pretty much in his voice. I mean, not got, got a lot of grief, I'm saying, from editors or from the legal team or whatever saying, you know, are you sure you should be uh, that sort of thing. Uh, did you have to deal with that? No, no, I I was aware of it. But I mean, now mm-hmm. last week or not last week, two days ago, I was, um, yeah, in Athens and it was a kind of indie bookshop and there was a lot of members of the there's LGBTQ book club that was there and they were, and yeah, you're never sure because I didn't, if I'm being honest, anticipate this when I was thinking of the story in 2013, 2014 and writing in 2015. He was gay. Mali was gay. Um, I, you know, I, I knew it and that was, he was a gambler. He was uh, all these things. And he was based on Richard de Soisa, But in the end, Richard de Soisa, the activist journalist who wasn't a gambler or war photographer, but they shared that thing in common. And I was deep into the writing and it was clear that he was a closet gay man. I mean, a man of many secrets who goes out to the war zone to kind of express himself sexually and then lives this sort of very weird but functional thing. It, it, it just seemed to be natural, so you go with the character. I wasn't trying to write an yeah. LGBTQ novel, and I don't think it is, and I don't... Yeah, certainly, who am I to tr- attempt to write that? Though, I would say if I... if What, are, what am I? A, a heteronormative, cisgender male uh, wants to uh, write about LGBTQ, I think, yeah, they should be allowed to. I mean, if they mess it up, they will get slammed, and they should be prepared for that, and therefore work it uh, as well as you can. Uh, But yeah, but I wasn't thinking any of that. That might have paralyzed me as well. So then I finished the story and yeah, then me and Nat over the edits were questioning this. Also the Mahakali, uh, the demon character Mm. is sort of, well, I won't say transgender because it's not quite true. Just has attributes of both genders or is, I don't know what the word for it is. uh, Um, uh, but, but you know, that's a common thing in Hindu mythology. We have uh, avatars that can change gender and uh, yeah. and, uh, and all of that. But we were, we question, we had a, not with legal teams, just among ourselves, is this... Mm-hmm. Uh, so we had those conversations. Not with the gay narrator. I mean, I don't... And, but I did send it to my friends who are gay and uh, just to get some sense check to make sure I'm not doing anything completely terrible. But I didn't get any bad feedback so I think also you're just you're writing human relationships and um, you know newsflash heterosexual men also cheat on their partners right so you know there's some men are pigs anyway so you know to write Mali who's like has this doting uh, partner but is out doing all that stuff and another person with you know in the end you're doing writing human relationships but yeah I think now you would you would debate that a lot further but even with the Mahakali, we felt it's not like being... Because it is a trope that the 
the the villain is a trans a confused transgender or the villain is the serial killer is always yeah. some and tra- the trans community have said you know that's such a bad stereotype but i don't think that applies in this case the mahakali is beyond gender is just this thing so it's not really a statement on any other so yeah you have those conversations now but i also believe you should be able to write whatever the hell you want to um, that's the yeah. Yeah, that's why you're a fiction writer if you but do your homework write it with empathy like if you get it wrong you're going to get smashed so but otherwise it's quite boring if i just have to write about yeah middle aged sri lankan single buddhist men right that that uh, so i don't know if i'll be brave enough to attempt a woman's point of view but you know why not if i if i want to why not no i think i mean so much of it is actually there like jackie i could so feel her you know like i think so even unconsciously when you we might not be writing in the voice but i think uh, i mean to to give writers credit um even the minor characters come alive when you're a good enough writer so uh, supposedly minor characters so i oh, think i mean you. i don't agree with you entirely but uh, um you. But yeah, I was just wondering. I mean, it also rang so true. I don't know, like you said, maybe it's the era in which you were writing, which was ten years ago. We didn't have all these sen- this idea of a sensitivity mm. reader did not exist. I think. Mm-mm. But um, I-, I found it rang so true because you know, like a lot of my gay friends speak about promiscuity themselves with their partners, whatever. So oh. I mean, I guess also the advantage is there are no consequences except maybe HIV. Uh, no oh. pregnancies and you know baggage of that sort to deal with but yeah uh, yeah perhaps. i mean that but that is that is also a stereotype the the promiscuous gay but you know i don't think it's a inaccurate stereotype either but yeah you you got to be careful with these things and be ready to answer questions but so far no i mean i i've had a lot of positive feedback i mean if people are think it's represented wrong no one's been telling me i haven't been um i have had a allegation from say the the right um, the sort of sri lankan right wing kind of commentators you know this is pandering to the west you know it's the pandering to the woke west having a gay you know it, it acts like colombo is full of just everyone is gay and deviant and uh, and all that so that you know the uncles who uh, right you get that kind of you know you have to take it all um but no no not from the thankfully not from the lgbtq community yet so Hopefully, right. it's it's okay. Yeah. No, but that was. I mean, one of one of those the most troubling scenes for me. I mean, I myself felt violated when I read it. The major kind of molesting Mali, right? The, where it's not about your sexual orientation. It's about emasculation. It's about power, and that was a very hard scene to read. A very like it left such a. as in I, i felt like oh god you know this should not be happening but of course it happens was it a hard scene for you to write there were a number of hard scenes like like i think the torture chambers the the real, yeah mm-hmm. that was i mean i guess it's obvious um i think i it what it wrote itself quite quickly i know that because i also um, you know we've grown up in boys schools so we know we've seen how power has been wielded i mean perhaps it's not yeah. as bad now i'd like to think so but i'm not that it was terrible in the 80s when i was growing up but you know we've heard stories from bygone eras of um, how in the in these hyper male situations it, yeah you're right it's may or may not have to do with sexuality but you're in these male situations and uh, yeah power a prefect a teacher can can do these things and so um, yeah it was like that and the torture chamber i think were the tough ones but also the war scenes the the descriptions of the bodies because i was usually looking at a photograph and trying mm. to write that in the tone of the novel so it's yeah so those were those were tough uh, so i'm glad it's done i'm glad it's done that's it but yeah Uh, you you've also said about you know like you've spoken about how growing up in colombo uh, you felt like the war was happening in another country um although mm-hmm. i mean there, there were i think there were significant dates like 71 of course 83 89 these dates when big events happened and you couldn't really be immune to that in colombo uh, but at what point in do you remember when the war started feeling very real to you Um, so eighty three, I was there in uh, in Sri Lanka, Colombo in eighty three, and uh, so I remember 
um, I didn't see much, but you know, you heard the stories and you could. So I, I experienced that as an eight-year-old. Um, and after that, we got used to having checkpoints and bombs going off. Yeah, a bomb would go off uh, somewhere close, at least once a year, uh, somewhere close to where we would have gone. So that you learn to that becomes normalized after a while. Assassinations, very common. Um, and um, that was basically our childhood. And But we were aware. I mean, even at that, I was a teenager, I was still aware that there were horrible things happening up north and east. And you'd look at the front of the paper um, and some of it was reported. But later you find out what was actually going on. And this was a full-blown, brutal war. So I think we were spared of that. All the all we had to endure was now and again there'll be a curfew, and which was fine if you're your kid, you know, don't have to go to school, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. So you kind of I wasn't very politically aware, uh, and this danger, this very real threat of a bomb going off where you are. But I think it's like you know, like the Americans now they take for you know they accept the fact that they could be anywhere walking their kids and some not with a gun will come and spray bullets and that's just life and you can't do anything about it. It's kind of like how you live with bombs. You're like, well... Yeah. And and so, aside from that, which obviously is not ideal and there is obviously trauma that we've... generational trauma that we've all inherited, but it was nothing compared to the suffering of the North and the East. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's only... I was aware of it at the time, but it's only later researching it you realise. We had it good compared to the rest of... Uh, I could have been born in Jaffna or Batikalo in the same, you know, son of a doctor and my life would have been very, very different. And so you're, you're aware of that. So there is that. I won't even, I won't term it survivor guilt. It's not quite as lofty as that. But that was sort of what I wanted to explore in the Mali character as well. He at least goes and does something about it. And he's quite flabbergasted that the rest of Colombo are happy to live within their bubble and, and find their other causes to pursue. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess Dr. Rani Shidran, I mean, you know, at least a person. See, the thing is, I think it is a danger when you immediately correlate them with the people whom they're supposed to be based Mm -hmm. on or whatever, because I think she herself evolves as a character, maybe not exactly like Rajanit Raganama, but, uh, you know, um, but just the the decisions that, like, Dr. Rajani made to kind of go to Japna when she could have lived a pretty decent life in Colombo with, you know, her children and her husband or even gone abroad and all of that. Uh, those choices people make. I, I, I don't know, I was just thinking a lot about the fact that uh, or even, I mean, even in China, man, you know, you have your last months, do you have to go looking for a missing cricketer instead of spending some time with your wife and son? But these are those hard choices which people make, uh, I was just thinking about that in the context also of the suicides. Like, you know, you suppose there's one point where you say the, the highest number, the highest suicide rate uh, in the last 10 years has been in Sri Lanka. And through all this humor, through all the dark humor, you can't ignore the darkness. I think you've even spoken in an interview about how when you were with the petrol queues, people would be playing cards and laughing about the situation. But the situation is there and it's so dark. And I think it's something that those of us in the subcontinent, like we've gained freedom over the last, like in our lifetimes or in our parents' lifetimes. There's so much darkness. And uh, would you like to talk about that a little? So sort of darkness, which we just learn to take for granted as, oh, this is life. But absurdity as well. Absurdity as well. Um, so with the, the suicide thing, and I, I think since it has been published, I met with the expert in poisons who worked during that 10-year period where we went from number one to now I think we're, you know, in the hundreds or where, you know, we're down there. And um, because it was puzzling, okay, we had a civil war, but was Sri Lanka a more desperate place than anywhere else in the world? Why were we number one? Or we were definitely top five for the a good part of the 90s and they found it was access to poison it was access to the the, the pesticides was so toxic um, that you know you have a bad love affair oh I'll show them how, how much they've broken my heart drink a bit and they don't really want to die but you're done and this guy this doctor was uh, campaigning to just reduce the pesticide just to have it it'll still kill weeds uh, kill pests but uh, it doesn't kill you and so, and the hung it went down. So also, like, 
so I think in that scene you mentioned, the characters are talking about, yeah, we're number one suicide. Why are we so depressed and so desperate? And then uh, someone interjects and says, no, it's just because we've got access to harsh pesticide, cheap pesticide. And uh, so it's, I think there is absurdity in that. You know, you can see. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's, you know, that's what I enjoy writing. And I think why not write it? Because, but yeah, you're right. We, we grow up with this, uh, not grow up, I mean, live with this idea that we live in a dystopia. I think that's, but to be fair, most of human history, people have lived in dystopia. So I think it's nothing new. It's just, we expect better uh, of us and we should demand for better. And we have, but yeah, these absurdities, um, I think Sri Lanka, and I know I've I've traveled and lived in India and I know uh, you're not immune to that as well. You, you just open the papers and you just see, between the horrors and the tragedies and the comedies, you just see these absurdities that can only happen there. So, yeah, why not write about it? What else? Yeah. <laughs> and, and no, this, this discussion on good and evil, you know, like at the central, I, the, that I love that idea so much. God is, he means well, he's just inefficient. And evil yeah. is more, is better organized. Which I was thinking how true that is, like, I mean, forget God or whoever, as you call him or her. Um, but but this idea of evil being better organized, and it's so true and it's so, it's heartbreaking, but it's also, that's how it is. It's just that good good people or people who want to get good things done can never seem to organize themselves, right? It's chaos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, that's been a reality of life. I mean, just, you don't even have to go to evil. You look at uh, banks and I've suddenly I've I got a bit of money coming in from royalties now. So I'm looking into finance and I look at how it's rigged, like how banks work. And I also wrote, you know, I wrote a lot of financial copywriting back in the day and I wrote for banks. Um, You know, if you're if you're like a multimillion client, they will pay you almost to have your give you a credit card, everything. If you have below like 200,000 rupees. They will take like 10% every time you dip down. It's like, and they will charge you with your credit card and all of that. And it's it's clearly rigged, but no one knows about it. Right? I mean, maybe, you know, we the poor kind of just take that as, okay, that's what I have to do. Whereas the rich enjoy this stuff. And yeah, you can't go against the banks. Like even like I'm looking into stock markets and all. I mean, finance is the, the biggest fiction, I think. Uh, bigger than you know the, the all these made up terms and these markets that things that go up and down and again it's the the normal guy can't fathom you know nailing the system but uh, yeah the hyper organized financiers can and yeah that i think that's true i mean that's just in finance okay people go bankrupt or you know it's not like life or death i suppose but um, yeah, uh, it's it's occurred to me that everywhere you see the bad guys are better organized than the good guys. Um, yeah. uh, but I mean, the, it was just so poignant, although this idea of God, you know, this way she says what religion and he says none and she says how silly and mm. this idea of God or whoever which comes all through. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's also the subcontinent for some reason. I think our generation at least you grew up uh, with a lot of, like you're just told, you're just, it's just assumed that you have religion. And then you grow up in this world which gets more and more chaotic and then you tend to lose religion, right? I, I don't know if you've experienced that personally, but uh, the characters certainly do. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm convinced by religion, I think would be the right time. Yeah, again, you don't want to conflate yourself with the character. Um, But just trying to find a plausible explanation, because if there is a cosmic creator um, overlooking this thing, either they are incompetent or they are malign. I mean, these are old. old, Mali didn't come up with them. They date back to the Greeks. uh, And, uh, but yeah. And so it just occurred to either they don't, so then logical thing is they don't exist, this is all created myth, or they do exist, they're well-meaning, but they're just badly organized, like the good in, mm-hmm. in our parts, yeah. Um, you know, we had this wonderful Aragalaya that brought down a government, demanded accountability, uh, but it was just a 
you know, there were so many elements to it and its strength was the fact that it had no clear leader for the opposition to target. But I think that was yeah. its weakness as well. Uh, and But I hope I'm proved wrong. I hope we will see something rise out of that, uh, you know, some new ideas. But I, I do feel this though, yeah. Good is not, not very well organized. Whereas, yeah, evil builds empires, I think, was the quote, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at this time, you know, when like the world itself is seeing this shift to the right, it happens, I think, every few decades, but we are living through one of those times yeah. now. And uh, do you think, I mean, like in, in Mali's case, he records, right? He's not actively doing anything about it, but he's gathering evidence for people who can't do something about it. And that seemed to me in a way a metaphor for the writer. Like, do you feel the writer has that sort of... Uh, obligation or duty like what is the role of a writer duty, according to you in today's world no 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 obligation or duty certainly not you can write about unicorns or dragons or whatever the hell you want like i i don't think there's obligation and it's dangerous in our part of the world if you start mm-hmm. taking on these big issues and taking on the state and the prevailing ideology yeah i so i wouldn't say Write, again, write whatever the hell you want. But, uh, yeah, if you want to take on this mantle, I don't know. I, I get more and more and more kind of cynical about how the impact of writers, if any. And I, I because I've been on these panels on this, this circus that I've been on uh, to talk about can books end wars. That was one. I think it was in uh, Kerala or Delhi. And... Um, okay. Yeah, again, like you think, Tolstoy wrote War and Peace, the, a greater novel than any of us could ever write. It's a classic, but it didn't do a great job of keeping Russia out of wars. It, and so whether we can write about anti-corruption novels, is that going to automatically end corruption uh, in, in our part of the world? Um, yeah, so I, I think, yeah, thinking on those lines is dangerous. But of course... Thinking positively, it may someone may read it in a the next generation, and maybe that idea will take hold. And yeah, there are all those maybes, but you, know, you can't count on that. I think you and also I don't. I'm not a message writer, even though it seems like this is a political novel and all that. I'm I just like a good detective story, a good missing person story, a good murder mystery, uh, a good ghost story, and so I'm just like trying to write within the genre conventions, but yeah, you know, Sri Lanka's full of such absurdity and so many strange characters that they end up talking and so it enters that discourse. But yeah, I I just wouldn't... Personally, I think, yeah, write what you want and um, yeah, there's always journalism, there's activism if you really want to uh, do something about the move to the right wing. Um but yeah, may, but maybe look, maybe I'm being too harsh on on the fiction writer. Maybe we do plant these seeds, and maybe they take fruit. Yeah, in the next generation, maybe. I mean, let's comfort ourselves with that. But yeah, I I don't think. I mean, what you're saying about message writing, I don't think that's the case at all. But you know, I felt oddly comforted when I was reading uh, Seven Moons because uh, I think there's also a lot of comfort to be had in the fact that everyone's going through this shit. You know. <laughs> It's yes. not, and <laughs> so I don't know. Like I mean, in fact, some of the most dystopian sentences were the ones that I found most comforting. Like this, there's this one where you say, you know, that's the nicest, that's the kindest thing you can say about all this. That it's not nothing. Yes, um, yes. I think, and and that sentence was so beautiful. And though it might seem flippant when you read it the first time. It is profound in a way that even you might not have meant. Were there times when the novel surprised you by how, uh, I think, how beautiful it was? Yeah, no, that lines, those lines, you do, so I'm, I worked as a copywriter, I still do a bit of work. So the headline, the tagline, to be able to say something in this little turn of phrase is something, you know, we've, we are supposed to do and I've been doing it for the last 20 years. Uh, but you don't plan the lines like that. I think it, it comes mm-hmm. out and then w- when I saw it, I knew that, okay, that's like, it's a very simple sounding line, but it kind of sums up um, Mali. And, you know, I think assuming there is an afterlife, which is not a obvious, uh, you know, fair, you know, uh, a brave assumption, but okay, let's assume there is. Uh, I think you 
get there and you'd wonder what was that all about. That would be your first, unless you live to a ripe old age and have a nice movie arc. You know, your heart attack at 55, you're like, what the hell was that? I was just about... So I think that him resolving that was part of the story as well. Him kind of, yeah, uh, making peace with that. And so I think maybe that's why that arc was there. And what we can do even from beyond. I mean, I really love that that whole thing of the this uh, the crow man and the, that crow uncle who, you know. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. No, no, there's lots I, of I mean, that came, Sorry. There's lots of soothsayers in Sri Lanka, lots of astrologers, lots of politicians who rely on them, go there, there for charms. And I visited a few of them and... Um, uh, yeah, so I the, the crow man is an invention, but yeah, based on a lot of astrologers who I met, because there's still that belief here, even among the, the, the very educated and the ruling class that, yeah, you need to do something on a certain date, you need to be holding this charm, you need to be warding off the evil eye and all of that. So yeah, I had a lot of fun with the crow man. He's a kind of gothic character, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, the, the way of, kind of mixed reality and fiction even in terms of the characters in both in both novels right i um i mean did, did you have fun with that also is there something you like you you even spoke now about how you were considering having a lawyer sue you for this pradeep living in australia and all of that um where does that come from do you think this idea of reality fiction <laughs> Yes, the, the mockumentary, I think, I'm a big fan of that, uh, from Spinal Tap to, uh, I suppose The Office even could be, though it's not a strictly mockumentary. But the one that really got me into this genre was um, Peter Jackson. Um, he was, so I, was wow. I did college in New Zealand. And this is before Lord of the Rings and before he became an A-list Hollywood uh, director. He was making kind of these indie zombie splatter horror movies and clearly quite talented but there was a mockumentary called Forgotten Silver uh, and that was about New Zealand's greatest film director who lived in the 1890s and they found this footage of him doing colour films and shooting the first flight and it was just like this and at that time it duped the entire nation or not the entire I mean a lot of people were writing like because they kept the hoax going for like a week that this uh, Peter Jackson had just found this film of this genius film director who lived there so that made a big impression on me. Um, and I thought uh, later when the Pradeep Matthew idea came, I thought, okay, something like that, where you're not sure, did this guy actually exist? Because this was before internet. So I was also watching, I thought, Colin McKenzie, he must be the greatest film director. And they had Spielberg and, uh, you know, Roger Ebert doing sound bites on it. So it, it had this authenticity to it. Now, of course, you see that it's very common, the fake documentary. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, so I, I think Spinal Tap's the other example. And um, so I think that was the motivation for the Pradeep Matthew story. Let's convince people that it's true. And now if you Google Pradeep Matthew, you'll st- still see some uh, websites dedicated to him and, and things like that. Um, <laughs> this one, less so though, Seven Moons, I'm not sure. I kind of disguise the characters more, I think. And um, yeah, I don't think, I use a few real names. But not as gratuitously as in Chinaman, but also, yeah, cricketers versus, yeah, army commanders and politicians. You know, you don't want to, you can have fun with cricketers, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Uh, so I think Seven Moons less so, less so. Yeah. Um, I guess, Abir, I just, you know, you spoke earlier about the parents, all the daddy issues and mommy issues, but I found the mothers so interesting in both uh, books, Pratip's mom as well as uh, Mali's mother. Um, and especially Mali's mother, she's such a complex character because initially it's this whole thing of, oh, you know, I just want to tell Amma that I don't love her or whatever. And then she becomes such a complex and beautiful character. Uh, how did she come to you? I'm not asking if there was an inspiration or anything, but, uh, you know, can you can you remember how you saw her first? Like, she's such a, she's such a big figure, really. Yeah, so Richard Tesorisa's mother, Manori Saravanamuttu, Famously started the Mother's Front, where, and yeah, we, even Mahindra Rajapaksa was part of that uh, back in the 80s, they, when they were peace activists, and they, um, uh, yeah, just mothers, us, who, with missing, missing children. Um, so I guess that was the beginning. Now, I don't know the relationship between Richard and Manori, if I wanted to gossip, I could have g- gone down there. 
But I sort of tried to imagine... Yeah, I, I, so I, don't, I wouldn't say it's based on that at all. Um, because I think for, they had quite a cordial, loving relationship and she moved to activism after that. Um, again, I, the relationship stuff is hard to recall because it's probably sitting in a room thinking, okay, how would these guys react with each other? But I just thought of when Mali Almeida was coming together and uh, you see these daddy issues, it was clear that he would... And I've seen this in real life. Blame the mum, blame the parent who's there and make their life hell, even though they are the ones who stayed, not the ones who left. And that, that dynamic is there. And I've had friends who've been through divorce, you know, grown up as divorced kids. And I've seen that where the absent parent somehow gets this kind of heroic glow and this one becomes the punching bag. But yeah, I, I don't know precise moments how that relationship evolved. It was quite nasty. And I think that's something that we in the edits also looked at because it was quite nasty for a long time but I think in the final version yeah there is some sort of coming together and some some resolution I think uh, but yeah like I said I don't recall how, how those came about or where they came from um, yeah the, the, the spirits told me I don't know <laughs> I think before we close I just wanted to speak about the children's book don't put that in your mouth <laughs> This yes. is this is actually a first official collaboration with your brother, I think, though he did the sketches and everything for Yeah, yeah, China so and... we we got another one. So we got Where Shall I Poop, which I think is the is the masterpiece. Um uh, those sneaky plants and now we're doing one about sleep. Um so yeah, that's like was I guess as the kids say a side hustle while I was struggling to write Seven Moons, I we thought, okay, let's just uh do a couple of kids' books every year and put them out ourselves. Um, but yeah, those are those are doing quite well as well. So I'm eager to get into that, and that's I think that might lead me back into writing because I'm writing a kids' book at the moment. You know, when you've mm-hmm. been on this talking tour, because it's it's kind of weird. You you want the quiet time not to be talking to just kind of yeah, uh, sitting down and writing. And so I've been the kids' books is kind of the entry into that. So I've been doing that and short stories. But yeah, yeah, they're going well. Uh, please don't put that. In. It's all. I thought the zero to two, a or zero to three that target group, and I'm thinking like an advertising guy, like a marketer. Um, <laughs> you know, I know middle class parents. You know, we've spent a lot on on at that period. You know, trying reading to the kid, and those books are some of them are masterpieces. Some of them are pretty basic, and I, I just thought, okay, forget trying to write literary novels that might win Booker prizes that no one may read, do some kids' books, a couple of kids' books every year, and that could be our way uh, into publishing. So, yeah. So, now both of those are working, and I kind of enjoy them both. Uh, I enjoy... Because kids' books are actually very hard to write. And, um, yeah. yeah, zero to three especially, and I'm doing another series. So, I think that'll be a fun project that will keep going between me and my brother uh, while I write the other stuff. I think it's also hard because you can't, most people don't remember much between zero and three, right? What is your, like, when do you think you were sentient at what age? I'll say again, zero and three. I said at what, a zero to three is not an age which most people can recall too vividly, maybe just scattered images, but uh, at what age do you think you were sentient, like, when ah. you were from West? I think six, right? Five or six. I can get images, barely five actually. So I don't remember any of the 70s. Um, So I suppose if I went into therapy or hypnosis, I might be able to. But I think six is what I remember. I can clearly have memories of, uh, yeah, being in Birmingham as a kid and being in Sri Lanka, Colombo as a kid and clear memories of 83, which is so seven, eight onwards. So I think six. Well, what about you? What's... Uh, two. That early? Wow. Oh my god, okay. <laughs> um, no, a lot of people are surprised when I tell them that, but uh, I think I remember things vividly from two scattered images from earlier. But uh, yeah, like I remember wow. I remember my mother's pregnancy with my brother and in its entirety and he was born when I was three. So I guess it dates back to two. Oh, okay. So, so you have a moment like that. that. So I wonder if my daughter will have the same thing because she was also barely two when uh son was born um but yeah okay that's interesting yeah 
Because you also break it to the kid, right? That, hey, you know, you're going to have this kid brother or kid sister and yeah. you don't know how they're going to react. Like, maybe you don't want to start with, uh, you'll have to share your toys. But it's like, hey, you know, you're going to be a big sister with that sort of thing. I remember that conversation quite vividly. So maybe your daughter will remember it too. Uh. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think you've been asked often why 1989, but you've spoken many times about 83 so far in this interview. Uh, mm. Was there ever like, did you ever think maybe 83 or did this just come to you 89? No, no, 83 is a big topic. Someone should write about it. Uh, I don't know if I'll have to, but I don't think I should. Um, uh, it should, you know, someone from a Tamil background, singular background, that, that's a project if you want to pitch at someone. Uh, because so many, again, different narratives. The only narrative you get now, you hear... So there's no memorial, no acknowledgement, nothing from any government. It's just on the internet every July, 83 gets a bit of... Yeah, someone says, let's never forget and post the same three pictures. And you only get the narrative that comes out of the comments is the Singhala Saviour narrative. Uh, the narrative mm. of... Um, you know, my my auntie, we sheltered the Tamil neighbors in our uh, bedroom, and and which is true. You know, I also have a similar story. Um, that's true. A lot of Sinhalese were yeah did look after their Tamil neighbors, but there were a lot of Sinhalese who did some terrible things, some horrific things to them, and that's not being talked about. I just thought that's a big topic. Like, um, so I didn't want to make because that would have overshadowed the entire novel. It would have become an eighty-three novel because there's so many. Wounds there. There is, uh, you know, Tamils living in Australia, in um, Canada, in London, who you know had to flee on that night in July, and th- that resentment is real. So that's something. Yeah, I. So I, that's why I didn't want to go there, even though there's there's references to it in in a mild way. Eighty nine, I felt more qualified to talk about because it was such a free for all, and you had. Uh, yeah, three different conflicts. And uh, yeah, it was just enough for me to do a murder mystery where there's multiple suspects. So that's why, and that was really my motivation, not any uh, yeah, political ambition of setting the record straight. But yeah, I think someone should write about 83. Someone should um, do an extensive thing while the people are still alive. The victims, survivors and the perpetrators are still alive. Uh, but yeah, I, I want to write a light comedy next yeah i just want to write a nice harmless <laughs> book with fairies and unicorns and maybe something sweet yeah <laughs> but someone should write it yeah uh, but there's last question before i go i promise uh 2009 right i mean i was i was working in news when it happened and i saw all those photographs like the uncensored photographs of prabhakar and his son and everything but even then in 2009 i think uh, i mean i'm from Tamil Nadu and I think in Sri Lanka as well, there was no real, no one was certain about whether the tigers had really gone, um, whether this was actually the end. And now it's been 14 years. It doesn't feel like 14 years to me, at least. Uh, How has, what has 2009 meant since, I mean, dear? Well, for us, look, it was a, what a moment it was that the war was over because we never thought we'd see that, my generation especially. We'd gone through the 80s, 90s, 2000s with so many false dawns, false promises. Okay, there's going to be peace now. There's going to be a settlement. And the war kept going. So that was a tremendous, yeah, something we thought we'd never see. Uh, but of course, yeah, that I, I, again, I should have been writing about that, but I didn't want to because, again, it's very contentious about, yeah, what, what actually, what lengths were taken to end that war, who suffered. And again, there's been a lot of bickering in documentaries, whose fault it was and all of that. I mean, I, I'm pretty, it's pretty safe to say that the Tigers were wiped out and who were left, many, many were rehabilitated. We have to acknowledge the positives, but, uh, and many were taken into the pay of the, of the ruling party and uh, still enjoy. And so, but you get that during elections, we get that stirring. Yeah, don't want the tigers are still around. They are lurking in the diaspora. They're collecting money. They're coming to get you. Vote for us, the strongmen. We will keep you safe. So, um, but I remember that being just a tremendous moment. And we, there was such hope. We all thought we would. Um, I, I, a lot of friends who were living abroad said, "We're going to come back to Sri Lanka." 
we're gonna invest, start a business. Uh, now we're gonna rebuild the country. So that's why it's sad for me, um, because none of those wounds, those issues were resolved. Wounds were healed, and we found ourselves about fourteen years later in an economic crisis. And um, yeah, but that was a moment of hope and hope. Yeah, you know, maybe twenty twenty two raise the, those hopes again. So maybe there'll be another moment. But yeah, I've lived too long. I've, uh, I've seen lots of false dawn. So yeah, let's hope. But, and let's see. On that note, thank you so much for making the time. Um, and I'm sorry that the, before you could even go sit by the swimming pool, we kind of caught you. But um, Thank you. No fast. Uh, and uh, good luck with the children's book. I look forward to reading that, the next one, <laughs> with the unicorns and the fairies. Thank you so much.